Well, Doris Day was a journalist and convert to Catholicism, and she wrote an autobiography called The Long Loneliness. She was speaking throughout her autobiography of different groups she had been a part of and yet how nothing seemed to fulfill her and that that loneliness, that longing, which is common to us all, for being a part of something, being together with others, that, that longing, that eating away at you of needing to be in community, ultimately is what she would suggest. She said, in closing her book, we have all known the long loneliness, and we have learned that the only solution is love, and that love comes with community. There is this longing in our world for community in order to experience love in that community. A professor from the University of Illinois' religion department, Jonathan Ebel, was reflecting on this, this book and this quote in particular as he experienced the death of a loved one, his father. Listen to what he said about that experience and reflecting upon this quote about finding fulfillment to that long loneliness in community. He says, in retrospect, I see this distinction in my father's last days in hospice as he struggled nobly but noticeably to die. He had the presence and the love of family and friends. He was comforted occasionally by music and once by a therapy dog. I know that all of this was meaningful to him. I also know, or I think I know, that at the end, the very end, the long loneliness was both was still there, both in spite of community. Death is inherently isolating. And because of it, he very much wanted to stay with us and could not. Some of the hardest things for me to reconcile myself to then and now were the steady shrinking of his communal horizons and our inability as community to do a single thing about it. To me, this is the long loneliness. Love and community were there. They were comfort and sustenance. In this sense, they may be a solution to the long loneliness, but they are not its erasure. In other words, ultimately, community, as our world conceives of it, cannot give us what we're longing for. We need something more. Ultimately, what we need is God himself to come down and meet this craving in our hearts, not just to be in community, but to be with him forever, to have our hearts fulfilled in Christ. And nothing else will do, no matter how good the community seems, no matter how enjoyable spending time with family and friends is. But in his own doing that, he actually provides us with the kind of community we need. He brings us into a family. He brings us into his family, the family of God. And in this passage, Jesus prays, we could say, for community for his disciples. He prays in particular that they would be one, that they would have unity together, that they would have community together. Remember, this is in the context of the last discourse of Jesus as he is about to leave his disciples 
and take the path to the cross where he would suffer and die. We've seen the last few weeks Jesus' prayer in chapter 17. He prays first for his own glory. Father, glorify your Son that the Son will glorify you. He prays for his disciples, for their preservation. Keep them in your love. He prays for their sanctification. Sanctify them by your word. And now he expands his scope to include not only his present disciples as he's there speaking, but all of the disciples. All who will come to know and trust in Jesus throughout time and history. That's you and me, brothers, if you are in Christ. Jesus prayed for you thousands of years ago. And we get to see his prayer this morning. Well, I want us to consider two main headings this morning and underneath each of those several sub-points if you're taking notes. The two headings are Jesus' prayer in verses 20 through 23 and Jesus' desire in verses 24 to 26. So what did Jesus pray for you? What did Jesus pray for us and all believers throughout history and around the world? Now we see he's praying for not only these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This implies, even in itself, a success to this future ministry of the disciples. It shows them, hey, we're going to make disciples. We're going to do what Jesus is empowering us to do. And notice his prayer. Verse 21. It's a simple prayer that they may all be one. Now consider it's interesting the prayer itself assumes that it's not yet what it ought to be, but that it can become greater. Jesus prays that they may become complete in their oneness, perfectly one. Jesus is praying for this, this growth in the oneness of his disciples. Well, consider this prayer for oneness, in particular consider what this unity is. I want us to consider the character of that oneness first. What does it look like? What does it mean when Jesus is praying that we as believers, as disciples, would be one? Well, we can clearly see it's modeled after the oneness of God himself, of the Father and Son. Verse 21, notice those words, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. In verse 23, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. These words are kind of confusing, aren't they? That I'm in you and you're in me and they're in me and I'm in them. It, we're all wrapped up in our unity together. It's modeled after the oneness of the Father and Son. Therefore, to understand at least something of this unity, something of this oneness, we should consider then, well, what is God like? In His Trinity, in His unity, in His oneness, Father, Son, and Spirit, what is God like? Well, we would say it's a spiritual unity. It's a spiritual oneness. It's not simply earthly, right? You might have clubs or groups you are a part of, where you have common interests or hobbies, and there's a certain unity there, but it's an earthly, temporal unity. 
Well, this is something deeper. This is something that touches your soul. This is something that connects you intimately and mysteriously in ways that groups like that can't. It is a spiritual union with one another. If you are a Christian, then you and I have a a particular union with one another, which is bound up in the Holy Spirit. We, We have become partakers of the divine nature as Jesus has put his spirit within you. And why would the Spirit not be united with one another in us, longing for one another, our spiritual growth in Christ? We would also consider that it is a, it is a diversity type of oneness. It is a, a oneness with diversity, not simply uniformity. Okay, You know what I mean by uniformity? Any Star Trek fans here? Probably not. But it's, we're not the Borg. The Borg in Star Trek are this, this cyborg race, and they are simply assimilated into this, this one sort of being. They, they walk like one another. They, they simply follow orders from the collective as they are united together. They have this kind of hive mind. There's no diversity. They're all the same. They're all doing the same thing. It might look like unity, and yet it's simply uniformity. And we are not like that. We are not the Borg. Sometimes we can think that the world would be better off if all the other Christians were just like me. If they could sound just like me, if they could just look like me, if they would do things like I did them, if we were all uniform, then we would be perfectly united together in love. And that is not beautiful. That is not the beauty of the unity that God has designed for his people. Which is why in Revelation we see those from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation are gathered together in this beautiful diversity. Their various gifts, their various ethnicities and languages and skin tones and all sorts of diversity redounding to the glory of God because they are one in Jesus Christ. Would separate any, any other group, these things. Not those who are Jesus' disciples. And also consider it is a oneness based on truth. Notice again verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's the there? Those disciples who would become the apostles. Through the words of the apostles. It is a oneness, a unity based on that word, the word of God. So sometimes we might think in order to have real unity and togetherness, we've just got to water down all the the doctrine, all of our our distinctives, all of our beliefs. We need to water all that down so nobody gets offended and we can all just be one together. But of course, that is not real unity. It is a oneness based on the truth of God's word and the Holy Scriptures handed down to us from the apostles. Like we say in at Christ Church Rollsville, in essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty. And in all things, we have love for one another. So that's the character of this oneness that Jesus is praying for. It's modeled after the oneness of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But notice also the means of that oneness. How does it happen? How, how is Jesus making us one? Notice in verse 22 that it's related to the giving of His glory from the Father to the Son to 
his disciples. Jesus gives his glory to the disciples, to his people, to all his disciples, and it results in their unity. It results in their oneness. Now, what is he speaking about in this particular case? What, what glory is he speaking about that he is giving to his disciples? Well, we'd be well to remember throughout the book of John, the glory that Jesus is usually speaking of is a particular glory. The people all around him want to see one glory. They want to see his exaltation. They want to see his popularity. They want to see him become famous. They want to see the amazing works he can do. And yet time after time, Jesus says, no, this is not the sort of glory that I'm seeking to show you. His glory, rather, is one of humbleness and meekness. His glory is one of laying down his life for the sake of his people. His glory is one which is foolish to the world, and yet for those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. Look in the first part of his prayer, in chapter 17, verses 1 through 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. He's speaking there of giving eternal life to his people through revealing the, who God is in his suffering, in his death on the cross for sinners. This is the glory that Jesus gives to us, his disciples. He, he, he puts this in us by his Spirit. This is the sort of glory he not only demonstrated on the cross when he saved us, but then when he puts his Spirit in us, he gives us this mind, Philippians 2. This is your mind. This is the mind that you have, which is in Christ Jesus. And Paul talks about the gospel. He humbled himself. He further humbled himself. He humbled himself even to the point of a shameful death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So then this glory is reflected first as we enjoy what Christ is and has done for us. As we look upon Christ who died for us and rejoice in that, delight in his work for us. As we do that, that glory is reflected in us and then it is reflected as we in turn go out and serve one another in the same way. Sacrificially. Laying down our lives for one another. And in this regard, I am so thankful for our church. The number of you who regularly serve one another despite in being inconvenienced or having challenges i'm thankful for how you serve one another it is an encouragement to me and yet we all need to grow don't we it, we would do well to reflect on our service when is the last time i served someone that it really cost me something where I had to sacrifice or re really be inconvenienced. It was hard. It didn't feel good. And if you're like me, your mind goes back to that one time that you did last week <laughs> where you inconvenienced yourself for someone else. But consider all the times we don't do that. Consider all those times you've passed up an opportunity to serve your brother and, or sister because it was an inconvenience. It would have you would have had to go out of your way. 
It would have been a sacrifice. Well, brothers and sisters, this is your mind in Christ. You have this mind because He has purchased it for you by His blood and He indwells you by His Spirit that you would lay down your lives for one another. And in this way, you reflect the glory of God and you demonstrate the oneness of Jesus' disciples. And we see what that does in turn as we look at the purpose of this oneness. Also in verses 21 and 23. So that, I pray that they would be one just as we are one, so that, verse 21, the world may believe that you have sent me. And then in verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. In other words, the purpose of our unity, this unity that God gives us, is that it serves as a witness to the world concerning Jesus' identity and who we are as God's children, that he has lavished his love upon us. Now, I don't think that necessarily means all people who see our oneness will come to faith in Jesus. Rather, it is a visible challenge to the world showing them who God is in Christ and showing them who the family of God is. Of course, this has huge implications for the universal church as well as the local church. I mean, consider the universal church and how God wants us to be one. That means all, all Christians throughout history and time and place. I don't think it demands denominational oneness, but we would do well to consider what would that look like for us to be one with other believers who are of different denominations, who affirm the truths of, say, the Apostles' Creed, who affirm salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone? What are we missing out on because we don't have unity with other believers throughout the world? And of course, locally, this has implications as well, as I've already spoken of, of how we love one another. Right? It's obviously a visible sort of oneness. It's not just a spiritual oneness that's unseen. It is a, a visible oneness that demonstrates itself in love and deed for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Others should see our oneness. They should see our love for one another. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, says, There is but one God, and they that serve him should be one. There is nothing that would render the true religion more lovely or make more proselytes to it than to see the professors of it tied together with the heartstrings of love. We'll consider some other implications or applications of this, this oneness which Jesus prays for us. First, the oneness of God's people is first and foremost a work of God. Right? We want to, I know our tendency, we want to put ourselves in the driver's seat and we want to say, how can we do this? But this is first and foremost God's work. God is making his people one. That's implied by Jesus' prayer to the Father to do it. Father, make them one. You do it. It's, it's your work. It's something only you can do in your people, for your people, is making us one. Prayer is an acknowledgement of complete dependence upon God. 
Prayer is an acknowledgement of our inability to do what we need God to do. And Jesus prays, make them one. Second, the oneness of God's people is based upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's, it's, what, it's what brings us together in a real way. It's what gives us this unity. Our oneness is based upon Christ. And so to the extent that it is our work, I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment, it will be strengthened by speaking of and nourishing one another in Christ, not merely in mutual interests or common hobbies or similar life stages. Now, I know that there are, there are value in those things. I wouldn't want to discount those at all. We can have real harmony with one another because of those things. And yet, I think those things matter less than we think. I think we highlight those much much too much. And instead, we underappreciate what it would mean for us to nourish us in Christ, what it would mean for our oneness and unity to nourish one another in Christ. Consider what a baseball coach does after a baseball game. Does he huddle the team around and say, all right, now everybody tell me, what are, what are you doing for uh, dinner in the next 10 minutes? And maybe if, if they want to forget, maybe the game was so bad they want to forget everything that, that, that just happened. Maybe he speaks about something different. But usually he talks about the game. Great job, guys. Here's what happened. I loved how somebody did this. I loved how he played that ball. What do you do when you walk away from a movie? As you walked out of Frozen, you talked about seeing a particular scene and something that moved you in such an amazing way. Something, maybe you watched the Avengers movie, and you were talking about the action scenes afterwards. You were encouraged by what you saw, and you wanted to share that with one another. And yet I have been in churches where after we gather together in this corporate time together and we worship our great and worthy God, the next words are out of our mouth are like nothing happened at all. Like we just ignored everything that just happened. Now that we're done with that, let's get on to the real stuff of life. Brothers and sisters, this is the real stuff of life. This is that of utmost importance of Christ and his word, of Christ and his glory. Speak of Christ. This is where our oneness will come from. So although it is God's work, it requires commitment and effort on our part. As one pastor spoke about, Kent Hughes he illustrated this point by speaking of marriage. When two are brought together in the union of marriage, they are one. And yet, it calls for a commitment to that oneness, to that, that growth in unity. It calls for effort and commitment. The truth of our oneness doesn't exclude the effort to maintain or grow it. So Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain it, to foster it, to nourish it. So how do we do that? Well, first we follow Jesus' model and we pray for it. When is the last time you prayed for the unity of Christ Church Rollsville? Pray for the unity of our church. Second, we nourish it by loving God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the means 
And so we pursue it by those means. Third, we love God's people. We love God's people. We we seek one another's good. You don't get community, that which we yearn for, you don't get community by focusing on community. You get it by loving your brother and sister. So as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book Life Together, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. He goes on to say, if we we seek to build the sort of community we want in the church, we're making a temple to idols. It will be all about us and our feelings. Yet if we seek to love one another, God will use these means to grow us in our unity together. Jesus prays for his disciples then, all of them. He prays for you, he prays for me, that we would be one. But we see one more sort of prayer in verses 24 to 26 in the form of an expression of desire. This is amazing that we get to see Jesus saying this. Jesus says, I desire this. I I long for this. This is what I want in verse 24. I desire that they may be with me to see my glory. Now notice two parts of this desire. First, that they may be with me. This is is what Jesus wants. He wants his disciples to be with him. It's right that he left. It's right that he departed as he died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. It's better for us that he left and gave us his spirit. Right? And yet it will be better still when you have the Spirit within you and Jesus beside you. We're still longing for that consummation. We want to be with Jesus. It is Jesus' desire that you, if you are His, be with Him. Is that your desire? That you would be with Christ? There's so many competing desires in this world in your own heart. Be sure to nourish that desire. Feed that desire. As you feed a desire, it tends to grow. If you feed the desire for worldly possessions, if you feed the desire for money or pleasure, if you feed these earthly desires, they will grow. Feed this desire to be with Jesus, considering, meditating on what will it be like to see him face to face and be with him forever. Jesus desires that we would be with him, in particular, in order to see his glory. To see his glory. You see that in verse 24. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now this glory, I want to say, is different from the glory he's already spoken of in that this is the glory of exaltation. It's almost as if this is uh, the heavenly prayer, that they would be with me, so we're, we're thinking in terms of heaven with God, and that they would see this radiant glory. Similar to verse 5, how he Praise, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. This glory of exaltation 
It's a, a particular, it's a peculiar sort of glory, think about it, in Revelation, where Jesus is the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. So you have a combination of this glory of humility and this glory of exaltation. The Lamb who was slain, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. It's a glory which will never forget or ignore the glory of suffering and shame he bore on the cross. Somehow in heaven, that will not produce sadness or guilt. It will produce rejoicing with all of your heart. It will re- produce rejoicing in the magnificent glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ who was slain for your sins. And all this because we have come to know God in Jesus Christ. And we know him because he made himself known to us. If you know God in Jesus, it's because God made himself known to you by his grace. By his grace. You weren't on a frenetic, uh, frantic search for truth. God graciously revealed himself to you so that you would see his glory and rejoice in it. So that you would see the cross and you would know that is where my salvation is. In Christ alone. And it is a grace which results in the love of God dwelling within us. In these last verses, there's an implication of judgment. Those who know God will be with him and see his glory. Those who do not know God will not be with him. They will not see him in his glory. They will only see him in condemnation and judgment. If you're not a Christian, come to him in repentance. Turn away from your sins. Reject your own self as king over your life. And bow your knee before him in faith, clinging to your only hope, which is Jesus Christ who suffered for sinners. And this promise will be for you as well. The dividing line in all of this is Jesus. And the end goal is to be with him and to see his glory. Well, there are many love songs in our culture. And almost all of them speak in hyperbole. They, they speak grander things than they really mean. You could look at... Uh, you could look at the, the old song by Meatloaf, right? I would do anything for love. Anything, but not that, I know. Or then also, ain't no mountain high enough. Speaking of the lengths to which one would go to display one's love for another. You could probably sing it with me, right? Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you. Nothing would stand in my way. It's hyperbole, right? Some things would probably stand in your way. If there was a song written of Jesus and his love for his people, there would be no hyperbole at all. There's no suffering bad enough. There was no beating painful enough. There was no sin heinous enough. No cross shameful enough. No death strong enough to keep him from saving You, if you were in Christ. He purchased you by his own blood, laying down his life for yours. He purchased your oneness. 
He purchased your path to be with him forever. He purchased your ability to see his glory and rejoice in it. So let's rejoice in that together, brothers and sisters.